All right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats. And as you head back to your seats, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, my name is Michael Matala. I'm privileged to serve as one of the pastors here at Newbreed Church. And what we're doing for the month of January and the first week of February, we always take the beginning of the year and kind of do a little small series uh, on our mission, our mission as a church, our mission statement. Uh, We'll be back in the book of John the second week of February. We've got some exciting stuff throughout the month of February, uh, even as we reflect on Black History Month and going to have a, a, a guest preacher coming kind of midway through February, which is going to be really exciting. But we're in the middle of a series, and we've entitled The Mission, and we're just walking through the book of Ephesians, uh, taking kind of a 30,000-foot approach because we believe that our mission statement, we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. It's not just something we made up because we thought it was cute. We think you can get that directly from Scripture. And so as we've been walking through each aspect of our mission statement, we've simultaneously been walking through the book of Ephesians and showing as creative as we are, God's just better at writing mission statements than we are. Uh, And so we've been tracking through it. And this morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. I'm going to read the entire chapter, though we're just going to focus in on a few sections of it. But I want to read into your hearing Ephesians chapter 4. Here's what Paul writes. He says, therefore, I, a prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, he gave gifts to the people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. 
They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language. Help us, God. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Again, you could preach about 500 sermons from that. We're going to try to preach one this morning focused on this idea of gathering around the gospel, gathering around the gospel. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, I ask in your kindness and strength that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Gathering around the gospel. So in 1964, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his work, Why We Can't Wait, he wrote this, If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Similarly, he also taught in a sermon that the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, again, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. And see, undergirding King's ecclesiology or his understanding of the church was the understanding that the church is the body of Christ at work in the world. It is the hands and the feet of Jesus to see Christ's kingdom come and all that it entails made manifest on earth. Basically, what King was arguing was that things happen when the body of Christ gathers together to act like the body of Christ. He believed that when the church gathers, not only are its members encouraged, but the work of ministry gets accomplished. And he proved that in a sense. Because as the civil rights movement was underway, it was the church, specifically the black church, that led the charge. There would be no civil rights without the church. It was the gathered body of Christ encouraging one another, equipping one another, supporting one another as they fought to make justice a cornerstone characteristic of God's kingdom 
is they fought to make justice known in the United States. King had a robust vision of what could happen if the church gathered together, actually gathered together as the body of Christ. A belief that both the members of Jesus' bride and the world at large would be better off if the church actually gathered as the church. And can I tell you this morning? We believe the same thing. We believe that both the members of Jesus' bride and the world at large will be better off if the church gathers and acts like the church. In essence, you could say it like this. We exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. And this morning, as we continue in our series through the book of Ephesians entitled The Mission, we want to focus on this significant idea that a chief aspect of making disciples is our gathering around the gospel. Gathering is significant. And it's significant because when the church gathers, first, you and I are equipped to do the work of ministry. But second, our gathering together is one of the ways we declare and reveal to a world that needs to hear it that Jesus is better. In other words, our gathering is a part of our testimony. But third, our gathering is a, is a countercultural decision. Let me explain, though we're going to talk about this more in a bit. We live in a society that values the individual more than the community. Right? We've got to acknowledge that we live, I'm talking about us in our cultural context, this isn't everywhere in the world, but in the United States, we live in a society that values the individual more than the community. You see, this was the constant discussion around individual rights, right? Everyone's concerned about my right to do this, my right to have this, my right to act this way. And often in our culture, if we're honest, the good of the community as a whole takes a back seat to the individual. And so when the church gathers, and it gathers with Philippians 2, 3, and 4 in mind, what Pastor Jesse mentioned earlier, right, that we're to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others as more significant than ourselves, looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interest of others. When we gather with that mindset, we are living a countercultural reality, but one that the culture genuinely desires. I think the culture does desire this community. I mean, think about it. That's why our culture is so enamored when communities come together, is it not? I mean, think about it. You watch the news. Scroll through your social media, wherever it is that you gather information. People are drawn to these stories of communities coming together to care for someone in need, to support those who are hurting or struggling. And we are, by our very nature as humans, drawn to these type of stories. And it moves us because there is something in us that is stirred when we see community happen, and that community then leads to the benefit of other people. But this actually reveals something about our nature as human beings, something about how we are hardwired by God. You and I are built to live in community. Every human being is built to live in community. And so there's something in us that just rejoices when we see community lived out well because we're made to be in community. And the community is meant to be for our benefit and the benefit of all those involved. And so let me just say this. It should be heartbreaking 
to see a culture that promotes and values the individual over the community. But can I tell you this morning, it's even more dangerous and devastating when that same mentality creeps its way into the church. And the reason it is so devastating is because as Christians, you and I were never meant to live out our faith in isolation. I need you to hear me. We were never meant to live out our faith in isolation. I've said it before. I'll probably say it again in the middle of this sermon. You never know. There is no way to be faithful to God without being faithful to the community of God. There is no way to live in a covenant relationship with God without living in a covenant relationship with his bride. And I want you to understand this. This isn't a secondary issue for Paul. I would argue it's one of Paul's chief concerns as we examine Ephesians 4. So let me just kind of press in here to how significant this is. So there's a shift that takes place at the beginning of Ephesians 4, right? So what we typically see, not all the time, but what often happens in Paul's writing, you see it in Ephesians, you see it in Romans, is that Paul spends the first half of his letter dealing with, we could say, more of the theology, right? So in chapter Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, we saw some of that rich theology. We saw him talk about predestination and election and being sealed with the Spirit. We saw, we saw him talk about how, how we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realm, how God has provided a way for us to be reconciled with him and reconciled to one another, right? We get some of this theology, and then a shift takes place in his writing. And in Ephesians, that shift takes place in Ephesians chapter 4, where he's shifting away from kind of the theological, although there's rich theology in this, but he's focusing more on how you as Christians live in light of that theology he just talked about. So we see it in Romans as well. He spends the first 11 chapters of Romans giving rich theology, right? Teaching the beauty of God's grace, the significance of the law, how Jesus and the law interact in this new covenant. He goes through all of that and then a shift takes place in Romans 12. Therefore, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we've come to that same shift in Ephesians where he's shifting from theology to what you do in light of that. That's why he says in verses one through six, therefore I, a prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all. So I want you to watch this. After Paul gives this beautiful explanation of kind of the beauty of the gospel, theology, right? What's the first thing he focuses our attention on? How it is that you and I live in community. But he doesn't just do that in Ephesians. It's the very first thing he talks about in Romans as well. After, therefore, do not be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Immediately after that, he goes into the body of Christ the gifts that have been given, and how you live in it. Have you ever thought about of all the things Paul could have talked about after giving us the gospel, the first thing he tends to always go to is how it is you and I live in community? Because that's not where we start, if we're honest, right? Yeah. All right, you became a Christian. Now I got to teach you how to read your Bible. I got to teach you how to pray. I got to get you into a community group. Well, it's kind of community. My picture broke down there, right? But, but that's not what we typically start with. 
right? You got to understand justification by faith. You got to understand ecclesiology. You got to understand all these things. No, what Paul talks about is, all right, in light of the gospel and the fact that you have been redeemed by Jesus, let me show you how to walk and live in community because that's where you need to be. It's not a secondary issue for Paul. And so if that's true, then it means that if we get this wrong, everything that follows in the Christian life will be out of joint, And so for us as New Breed Church, we want to be faithful to make disciples. And we believe, as it states in our mission, that making disciples hinges on us, not only going with the gospel, and that is important, we'll talk about it next week, but also that we gather well around the gospel. Again, we exist to make disciples. You're going to have it memorized by the time the series is done, right? If you think you say it with me, say it with me. We exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. If you remember and you didn't say it, I'm going to talk to you afterwards because I saw. All right, stick with me. This is a joke. It is in community where disciples will be made. And it is in community where discipleship will flourish. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to flesh out what we briefly mentioned in the introduction of why our gathering together is so significant for us, why gathering around the gospel is essential for building up the body, and why make, and gathering around the gospel is essential for disciple making. And Paul gives us quite a few reasons why gathering around the gospel is so important. Here's the first. Gathering is a testimony of God's grace. Gathering is a testimony of God's grace. So go back to verses 7 through 10. It says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, When he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, he gave gifts to the people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the things to fill all things. And so what Paul says in these verses is very interesting. He begins there in verse 7 and says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so once again, when Paul makes that statement, he is reminding us that God's grace toward us is not merely limited to our salvation. Yes, we see God's grace in salvation. Amen? Right, it's Ephesians 2.8, for you are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it's a gift. Salvation is the supreme display of God's grace, but God's grace is lavished on us so much that every good thing that we have is a result of his grace. That's what James 1.17 tells us, for every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of life who does not change like shifting shadows. So for us as Christians, we attribute all that we are and all that we have and all that we are able to do to the grace of God. And this includes the gifts and abilities that he has given us. And what Paul is doing is he's revealing that those gifts, given as a result of God's grace, are meant to be fleshed out in the body and for the good of the body as a testimony that we have received and experience God's grace. I mean, you can go back to the first three verses, right? Therefore, I, a prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received with humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
And in these first few verses at the beginning of chapter 4, we recognize, right, that Paul is talking to believers about how they should live and fellowship in community. And so what Paul is arguing is that if we're ever going to live in fellowship, if we are ever going to gather well around the gospel, it will require us to use the unique gifts that God has given us as a result of his grace for the good of those around us. One commentator said it like this. He says, the great heritage of the faith, all Christians share, having this in common, they are responsible to guard the unity of the spirit. But they, are, but they may not expect their personalities, their gifts, and their tasks to all be alike. In God's wisdom, and to make us dependent on one another, God has ordained not uniformity, but an endless variety of gifts for members of the body. As Calvin puts it, no member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection. I know you're great, but no member, right, is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own needs. To each of us is given different gifts for the benefit of all. Commentators are great, but Scripture argues the same thing. Romans 12, 6 through 8, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence, showing mercy and cheerfulness. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. Now there are different gifts, but the same spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. So let me make it plain. What this means is that when we gather, you are not meant to be merely a spectator. But you are meant to be a participant for the good of those around you. And this is part of your testimony. Right? You've heard me, I'm not going to go into it that much, but you've heard me attack that statement that was really pervasive in like the late 90s, early 2000s of like, you're worshiping to an audience of one. It's just not true. When you come into this place, it is not just about you and God. It is about you and God and every other covenant member that is sitting around you. Through God's grace, God has gifted you with certain things and not a one of us has all of the gifts. And if all of this is true, we have to shift our perspective about what it looks like when we gather together. You see, when we view this as merely a spectator event, it becomes optional for you. We're just going to have an honest conversation, okay? It becomes optional for you. But when you understand that if you are not here and using your gifts, the body is actually missing out, if all that's true, right, it should change how we view this gathering. Because here's what tends to happen. I'm going to be honest on my end. I'm just going to tell you. What often happens in the church is that pastors will try to overcompensate for the areas that are missing that you are gifted to fulfill, right? And what they do is they then burn themselves out in ministry. Like if you just look at statistics of pastoral ministry in the United States, they are scary. Almost half of pastors never remain in the pulpit beyond the age of 45 because they're burnt out. Most pastors leave their church within five to seven years, and no one stays long-term. 
And so I do want to give you a shout out, right? It is an evidence of God's grace that, that we have been grinding together for 10 years now. Like that is an evidence of God's grace. But, but that's what tends to happen. And we as pastors, we're honest, we've felt that before. All right, like people aren't using their gifts, but it has to get done. We're just going to do it. And then we just burn ourselves out. Make no mistake, we need to be active in this body, every one of us. But it's deeper than just refusing to meet. It actually speaks to our testimony. Because if, as Paul says in 3.1, we have an administration of God's grace given to us, if, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.8, this grace was given to us by God to reveal Christ's love, and if, as Paul argues here in chapter 4, God's grace is meant to be lived out and revealed in community, that means if we refuse to gather well, we are actually refusing to testify about the grace of God that we claim to have in our lives. Because one evidence, not the only evidence, but one key evidence that we have received and been changed by God's grace is that we meet together to pursue one another in unity so that we will be built up into Christ. You may be thinking, all right, I get that. I agree with that. What does that have to do with discipleship? Again, I'm so glad you are a theologically astute church and you asked the right question. So I'm going to tell you what this has to do with discipleship. Keep reading in verse 8. For it says, for when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive to give gifts to the people. So this is referring to the ascension of Jesus when he ascended and sent the Spirit who gives gifts, just as Jesus said he would do in John 16, verse 7. But then keep reading in Ephesians. There was a purpose behind this, verses 9 and 10. And what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens to fill all things. I know it's clear as mud, but here's what I want you to focus on. The reason Jesus came, the reason he died on the cross, the reason he rose from the dead, the reason he sent the Spirit is so that all things, as it says at the very end of verse 10, would be filled with him. Again, that's not new. We talked about that in the first sermon in this series, right? Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time. Here it is, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. And so if you remember back to that first sermon, we talked about how we should pray that the presence of Jesus would fill our city. We should pray that the presence of Jesus would fill the West End. We should pray that the presence of Jesus would fill our schools, our jobs, our hospitals, and our homes. But make no mistake, you are praying that you would fill this city, that you would fill the West End, that you would fill your schools and your jobs and your hospitals and your homes because we collectively are the presence of Jesus wherever we are. We are the means which, through which God intends to bring the nations under the loving rule of Jesus. That's a big task. We are the means through which God intends to bring the nations under the loving rule of Jesus. We, the church, are the means through which Christ will fill all things with himself and his kingdom. And that's beautiful that God in his perfect plan has decided to use us to be a part of how Christ will fill all things. But it will require that we honor the grace of God by using the gifts that he has given us to see those around us look more like Jesus. And I need you to understand that making disciples is not just about coming, people coming to place their faith in Christ. That's the beginning of the process. 
That process continues on throughout the remainder of their lives. You see, making disciples then is not only about the people out there, it's also about us in here. We are making disciples while we are being made into disciples. And what we understand is that discipleship hinges on us gathering together as the body of Christ. So let me just offer one plug here for what we mean when we, New Breed Church, talk about gathering. We as a church have identified two two chief ways by which we want to gather, two ways that your pastors are intentionally and actively overseeing in a very clear way. The Sunday morning gathering, where you are right now, and community groups. Those are the two ways by which we most naturally see us fulfilling this idea of gathering around the gospel. Now, those aren't the only ways, right? We have a great women's ministry. We have a phenomenal men's ministry. We have incredible new breed kids, right? We're praying that those community groups would then cipher down into these kind of organic DNA relationships. We call them discipleship, nurturing, and accountability relationships where you partner up on your own with a brother or sister in Christ and just live life together. But the two official ways that new breed church seeks to gather together is through the Sunday morning gathering and community groups. That's what we mean primarily when we say we're gathering around the gospel. You with me? All right. And the reason that this matters so much is because I need you to exercise your gifts to help make me a disciple. Just like you need me to use my gifts to help disciple you. Discipleship cannot happen when we refuse to gather. And when we refuse to gather, we're refusing to testify with our lives of the grace of God that we claim we have. So the first reason gathering on the gospel is so important is because gathering is a testimony to God's grace. That was the longest point. I've got five of them. I'm just giving you a heads up. But Stacy gave me the permission to like preach a few more long sermons, and I haven't done it yet, so here it comes, okay? Here's the second thing that I want you to see that Paul argues is that gathering equips us for ministry. Gathering equips us for ministry. Look at verses 11 and 12. And he, who's the he there? Jesus. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. And so what Paul is communicating here is that one of the gifts that God has given us, the church, through his grace is particular people to lead the church. These roles that are mentioned are roles which represent the ministry of the church, particularly as it relates to those who lead. So in other words, this speaks to what my role and what the other pastor's roles, what what we do and why it's a benefit to you. And so my role, as I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, what I think about most often as it relates to me being a pastor is to equip you to do the work of ministry. And let me tell you how I effectively do that according to Scripture. First, I teach the Bible. Right? That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So one of the things, the chief thing that I, as your lead pastor, am responsible for is to teach the Word to you. This is why I spend so much time on this. But second... I pray for you, 
right? Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of, of Christ Jesus, sends you greeting. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. And I'm not trying to like puff myself up here, but church, I pray for you. Every morning, I take a different group of our membership of our members here, and I pray for you. And when I know that there are things going on in your life, I pray for you. We as pastors have set aside an entire elders meeting every month where all we do is pray, right? Because we know that we can't equip you apart from the Spirit, and so we are pleading with God to work. So, so we preach the word. We, we, we pray for you. But third, I watch out for dangers that you may not see, right? That's 1 Peter 5, 2, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Acts 20, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as an overseer to shepherd the church of God, which is purchased with his own blood. Those are the three chief things that I do on a day-in, day-out basis to love you and equip you for the work of ministry. I teach the word and prepare to teach the word. I pray for you and I watch out for dangers that you might not see. But let me speak to that last point. Let me chase a small but I think necessary rabbit trail here. This is why we need a biblical understanding of authority when it comes to the church. Some of y'all just tightened up. Stick with me, okay? We are living in a day and age where how authority is distributed and used is being questioned because of rampant abuse in the church. All kinds of abuse. The headlines are devastatingly riddled with individuals in positions of spiritual authority using that authority to sexually abuse. There are individuals in positions of spiritual authority using that authority to emotionally abuse, to spiritually abuse, to financially abuse, but I need you to, I need you to be clear on this with me. The problem is not authority. The problem is abuse of authority. Because whether we like it or not, God has placed all of us under levels of authority. If you are a child, you are under the authority of your parents. You are under the authority of the teachers that your parents have allowed to teach you. If you work at a job, you are under the authority of your boss. If you are in a church, you are under the authority of a pastor. We as citizens are under the authority of a government that God says he has sovereignly ordained. That means that our leaders in office right now are ordained by God, whether good or bad. November, we're going to vote between two bad leaders, and it's ordained by God. But we are under their authority. As Christians, though, we are supremely under the authority of God. And everything else comes second to that. So if I tell you to do something that is contrary to what God tells you to do, don't follow me. If the government tells you to do something that is contrary to what God tells you to do, don't follow the government. We could work down the list, but I need you to understand the problem is not authority. Because authority was established in Eden before the fall. Authority will exist in glory. Authority is not bad. The abuse of authority is terrible. But what I need you to know is that the only way that we as pastors can effectively guard you is if you are willing to submit to us as we submit to the Lord. 
And I honestly believe that in the American church at large, and I'm speaking very generally here, in the American church at large, particularly not the black church though, we've lost the weight of the role of a, of a pastor. If we're honest, often I'm seen as nothing more than a person offering optional advice or spiritually therapeutic solutions to you. But if we're honest, some of you don't see me as your pastor, someone who has authority to speak into your life in spiritual matters. But God has ordained that to be for your good. But again, that's the beauty of submitting to God first. It means if you ever see me or Pastor Michael, or Pastor Jesse, or Pastor Lance, abusing that authority. By all means, call us out. By all means, walk away if we refuse to repent. But it doesn't negate the fact that God has placed us to be spiritual authorities in your life. And can I just tell you, church, if that scares you, I want you to know that we want to be a spiritual authority in your church, not because we, as these four men, and I can testify to their character, not because we love the power that it brings, because we love you and we believe the dangers are real and we have committed our lives to join you in watching for those dangers. We want to shepherd you well. My aim is that you would be equipped to do the ministry that God has gifted for you to do. But that implies something. It implies that you have ministry to do. Even as verse 7 already revealed, every Christian has a work of ministry, a spiritual task or function and responsibility to this body. And as you are faithful with your ministry, and as I am faithful with mine, when the body of Christ is acting like the body of Christ with all of its parts functioning as they, sh as they should, an amazing thing happens. The church is built up in Christ. We will see disciples being made. We will be greater disciples. But we have to understand that gathering is significant. Here's the third reason that gathering around the gospel is so important. Third, gathering promotes gospel unity. Gathering promotes gospel unity. We see this in verse 13 explicitly, but let me start reading again back in verse 11. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Here it is, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. See, an amazing thing happens when the people of God gather together to serve one another and to be led by qualified leaders. We not only grow in our relationship with Jesus, we grow in our relationship with one another. We see unity fleshed out. Because remember, unity is the aim of this section of Scripture. It's what Paul's trying to get us to see. This is what he's pushing the church to. That's the first three verses. He ends by saying, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's what he's pushing for. So what Paul is trying to help us understand is that as we gather, the goal is that we would be living pictures of the reconciliation that he talked about in Ephesians chapter 2. You remember that, right? We talked about in Ephesians chapter 2 how the beauty of Christ's redemptive work is that we see reconciliation both, both horizontally and vertically. So we are reconciled to God. That's Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. 
right? We, we live in relationship to him as his bride. He has provided a way for us to be made right with him, though our sin has separated us from him. Jesus came, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, was crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and invites us to find salvation in him. And in so doing, by believing and repenting, we are reconciled to God. But Jesus' work doesn't stop there. Because in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we show that how Christ's redemptive work was not only significant and sufficient enough to reconcile us with God, it's able to reconcile us with one another. He is our peace who has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And so as we live as the gathered body, we are actually modeling in a real sense the reconciliation that Jesus provided for us in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And this unity Hear me, it's not just for our good, though it is for our good, amen? But it's a means by which discipleship will flourish. Because John 17, verses 20 through 21, I need you to feel the weight of Jesus' prayer right here. He says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be as one, listen to this, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. So first off, he prays, Jesus prays that we would be as united to one another as he is united as a trinity. Okay. But then he says this, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I just need you to know that the unity that Paul is speaking of, the unity Jesus prays for, is a unity that is experienced personally, face-to-face as we live lives of discipleship with one another in covenant community. And he is praying that that unity would then be a testimony to the world that we believe that God has sent Jesus. But again, we have to live this out in personal, face-to-face, real-life experiences. Let me say it another way. God is not calling you to live your Christian life on social media with internet theologians. God is not calling you to live your Christian life by listening to Bible podcasts and preaching podcasts and Bible studies online. And while none of those things are inherently bad, I'm thankful we post our sermons on podcasts. They cannot replace what happens when the body of Christ gathers together physically. I would argue, and I understand the weight of what I'm about to say, that the greatest proclamation we have to the world that we believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, the greatest proclamation we have is our unity. And it is that proclamation which is the starting point of any and all discipleship. Because discipleship doesn't begin once people are already saved. Discipleship begins when we proclaim who Jesus is. I had a professor who said it once, and I loved it. He said, evangelism is the starting point of discipling. Discipleship, you're discipling someone before they ever come to know Jesus. It's just if they never place their faith in Jesus, you never move on in discipleship. But you are discipling as you are proclaiming Jesus. And the greatest proclamation we have is our unity. Again, our unity revealed through our commitment to gather together is our first proclamation to the world. So gathering around the gospel is important because gathering is a testimony of God's grace. Gathering equips us for ministry. Gathering promotes gospel unity. But fourth, gathering protects us 
as we engage with the lost world. Gathering protects us as we engage with the lost world. Look at verse 14. He says, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. See, when we seek to fulfill our mission, when we are active in making disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel, we are stepping into a spiritual war. And we'll see this more clearly next week when we talk about going with the gospel. But Paul writes in Ephesians 6 verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. As Paul writes in Colossians 2 verse 8, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of this world rather than Christ. Church, there is a battle raging for hearts and minds right now. And it's not just the hearts and minds of people out there. I think the primary battle for hearts and minds is waged in here because Satan already has them out there. And what Paul wants us to see again is that it was never a spiritual battle that you were meant to step into alone. And as you grow into Christ, as you grow into one another, as you gather with the body, you are actually safeguarding your soul. I like the picture Paul uses about not being tossed around by the winds and the waves, right? I think of it in terms of fishing because Jesus said, like, we're fishers of men. So I feel like Paul's probably, like, playing off of that, right? Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And so Paul says, yeah, and then when you're out on the boat fishing, what your gathering does is it stabilizes you. So funny story. So I went, I like to think of myself as a really good fisherman. Um, I haven't been in, like, three years, but I still think I'm better than you, uh, I, I like to fish, though. Um, when I was living in South Carolina, some of my buddies were going out, and they were going kayak fishing. I've never been kayak fishing, right? I normally fish off, if I was out on water, it was off of somebody else's boat, their pontoon, their bass boat, whatever it was. Never mind. I'm not built like that, but I was used somebody else's boat. But they were like, hey, we're going to go kayak fishing. I said, this seems really fun. I like kayaks. I like fishing. Let's put them together. And so we got the boats out, the kayaks out, right? Got them in the water, and I noticed all the guys sticking these things in the side. Right? I was like, hey, what are those? Like, I've seen kayaking. I've never seen those. He's like, those are stabilizers. So I was like, why do you need a stabilizer? Like, well, it's really hard to fish with the boat rocking if you're not stable, right? Because we want to stand up in the kayak, which I was like, oh, that's crazy. I'm not doing that. So I was like, you know what? I don't need those stabilizers because I'm not going to stand up. I'm just going to stay in my seat. I'm going to cast out there. I'm going to catch a fish. Ah, you know, I'm going to get them. Uh, already planning on showing them all up. So all of my buddies put these stabilizers on their kayaks. I literally left mine sitting on the shore. I was like, I'm good. They didn't say anything, right? Because they weren't gathered around the gospel with me, all right? So they let me go out there. Fishing for a while, you know, enjoying one another, talking, hanging out, throw one, buy some lily pads, right? Yo, it hits. I'm like, this is it. Like, we were topwater fishing, so you know, when you're topwater fishing, I know this because I'm an expert fisherman, all right? So when you're topwater fishing, the fish is going to come up, it's going to jump. And if you pull it while it's jumping, you're just going to pull, pull the hook out of its mouth. So you have to let the fish turn and go down, right? Set the hook, and then, ah, you got him, right? So I know this. Fish jumps. I see this sucker. I'm like, yo, I'm winning today. Let the fish go down. Hits the water. 
yank that sucker. Straight out the boat I go, right? Thing flips over, can't stand. I'm stubborn. I'm not letting the fish go. I'm drowning myself trying to get this fish. I don't want to prolong the story. Let's just say when all was said and done, I swam to the shore with no fishing pole in my hand and no boat. And I looked at those stabilizers and we won't say what came out of my mouth. All right. But this is kind of the picture that Paul's painting, right? We're in treacherous water. We really are. And the beauty of the gathered body is that we become one another's stabilizers so that as we fight for the hearts and the souls of the people around us, we don't fall out of the boat. And none of us is as strong of a Christian as we might think to be able to stand without the stabilizers of the body. Right? Paul could have never really known how much we needed those words. Because whether you recognize it or not, you are bombarded with every wind of teaching. The amount of information that is available to us at our fingertips is astronomical. And all of it has a worldview behind it. But it is in this place where we come together. It is in our community groups where we come together. It is in personal relationships with brothers and sisters that we gather together to hear from God and sift through the things that we hear in this world. Again, please hear me. When we neglect to meet, we are neglecting the fellowship through which God intended for our hearts to be guarded, our minds to be protected. And again, I know I've said it before, but it bears repeating. You were not meant to do this Christian life in isolation. Your faith was never meant to be cultivated solely by yourself and some internet preacher. You were never meant to face the wind and the waves of this world by watching a church service online. And I need you to know that me by myself, the four pastors by ourselves are not sufficient enough stabilizers for you. We need one another. We need one another to make disciples. We need one another to be a disciple. And gathering together guards us. I know I'm running long, so I'm going to condense this. If we're <clears throat> going to experience the protection that Paul is talking about, one of the things that it will require for us, though, is that we're actually honest about the battles that we're facing. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, we're going to get there in just a minute, but speaking of how we should act as the gathered body, he says this, therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. So he's speaking about speaking the truth to one another. But I don't think he's talking about lying like we often think of lying, right? I don't think Paul's talking about this high-handed deceit where we're intentionally trying to deceive one another in the body. You know what I think Paul's actually getting at? How are you? I'm fine. And we know we're not fine. Speak the truth to one another. I think that's what Paul's talking about. I'm not okay. I'm not doing well. I'm confused. I'm conflicted. I have questions. I have doubts. I'm hearing things. I'm seeing things. I'm struggling. I'm fine. Church, I just need to tell you, you are not the first person who has struggled with pornography. You are not the first person who has wished you were married to someone else because you think it would be better. 
You are not the first person who cannot control their temper when it comes to their children and you keep lashing out. You are not the first person who has struggled with pride and anger and selfishness. And it is okay to not be okay. Like part of the reason we've cultivated our community groups, right? The end of every community group should be doing this, right? So I'm snitching on you community group leaders. It's something that we call chatting with one another, confession, honesty, accountability, transparency. And what we don't mean during that time is, hey, pray for me. I got a job interview coming up. That's great. That's the big prayer time. That's the like, yo, I I am struggling to keep my mind pure right now. And I am failing. And we press into one another and we fight for one another. We battle for one another. But we've got to be honest with one another. And listen, I'm not saying that everybody that asks you how you are, you have to give this full sermon on your life, right? You have built, ideally, relationships with people, and you are growing deeper ones with others. It is okay to not give every detail to every person that asks, okay? It is not okay to keep every detail to yourself always. We need one another. And God has given us a grace and a gift in one another. And so we fight for one another. Right? It's not just the pastors who leave the 99 to go after the one. It's you. As we live in covenant community, gathering together protects us. It protects us as we engage with the lost world. Here's the fifth and final truth I want you to consider. Gathering, and I know we mentioned it a little bit in the introduction, but gathering is countercultural. Because I mentioned it, I'm not going to spend too much time here, but let me just show you why gathering is so countercultural. Look at what Paul says, beginning in verse 25. We're just going to read the end of this chapter again. Beginning in verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Ephesians 4, 29. No foul language should come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Like I wasn't joking when I read that the first time. I said, God, help us. Right? Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice be, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Gathering around the gospel is countercultural. Here's why it's so countercultural. Because this is not the way the world acts. Right? When the world lies to protect itself, we're honest to expose ourselves. When the world responds in anger, we respond in love. When the world cancels in rage, we cover in grace. When the world tears down, we build up. What we do in this place stands in stark contrast to the world out there. And if what we do in here matches the world out there, the world hasn't changed for the better. We've changed for the worst. Our gathering should be so strange in the eyes of the world and simultaneously so appealing. But make no mistake, we are, we are li- when we are living faithfully as the gathered body of Christ, it provides a window through which the world can look in and see a glimpse of a better kingdom. A kingdom where you don't 
have to make a name for yourself because Jesus has already given you a better name, a kingdom where you're not defined by the mistakes that you have made, but by the grace of God that has made you new, a kingdom where you don't have to look out for yourselves because others always have your back, a kingdom where you can be weak because we have a king who is sufficiently strong. And church, in everything we have talked about this morning, if I could just say one thing, it would be this. Gathering together as the people of God matters so much. And if you ever doubt that, look at what it cost Jesus to make a people of God. Because when God was redeeming a people, he didn't send blueprints. He didn't send building plans for a church. He didn't send a how-to manual. He sent a groom to redeem a bride. And when we couldn't get to God, he met us where we were. And he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. He was crucified with nails in his hand and nails in his feet and a spear in his side and a crown of thorns on his head. And he died. But he didn't stay dead. Because with one miraculous breath, He rose from the grave. And all of our hope and our joy and our salvation and our identity is tied to that groom as we function as the bride of Christ. And when we are united to Christ through his death and resurrection, we are united to his body as well. And we, church, should be diligently seeking to grow as a body. I'm not just talking about numerically. To be built up into Christ to see disciples made. And this happens when the body of Christ gathers together in order to grow together. And we understand that each and every one of us has a part to play. And each individual has a responsibility if this body is to be healthy for the glory of God. Let's pray to that end right now. Heavenly Father, I ask, God, that you would give us grace to faithfully be the body of Christ. God, that we wouldn't see it as a burden, but as a grace that you have given us. That we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We get to live as the people of Jesus. And we don't have to live alone. We get to live with one another. And yes, we can be messy. And yes, we can make mistakes. But at the end of the day, if we have been forgiven by Jesus, We can forgive those around us and live as your bride, making much of your kingdom while we are here on this world. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.